brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. And brought to you by American Yogi. In a world increasingly driven toward the grind, find your outlet for peace. American Yogi is a mindfulness-based apparel and wellness brand with international retreats, free classes, and rad clothing and accessories to support you along life's journey. Find American Yogi on Instagram at liveamericanyogi or at americanyogi.com. American Yogi is proud to support the Brass and Unity podcast and its community with the code BRASS15. Join the mindful counterculture. Live American Yogi. Travis Peterson is on the show today, retired master sergeant with 21 years in the Air Force and continues to serve his community. I'm not sure why or how to put the stress on him. Are you trying to lose all your hair in the next 10 years? Is that the goal? It's it's gone a little gray, a little white, and uh, I hope it just stays there. So, yeah, it's a difficult route. It is a difficult route. For some people who don't know who you are, I was connected through Jax. This is another special operations female who will be on the show in the next couple of weeks. But she was somebody that participated alongside me at the Warrior Angel 4x4x48 to benefit SOA, to benefit Heroic Hearts Project and Vet Solutions. And I've been... Very blessed to have that woman walk into my life. She is what I consider uh, what all women in service should try to emulate. She can outruck any man I've ever seen with those legs. She has gone downrange and she is someone who surrounds herself with uh, people of purpose and mission and driven individuals. And when she brought you up to me, it was a no brainer, no brainer. And uh, yeah, you're 100% correct. Jax is just, uh, she's, She's unbelievable, and you're correct. Um, you know, not only female, but male service oh, members yeah. should, strive, <laughs> should, should strive to be as good as her. She really does surround herself with the best. And when she gets a mission, she just tackles it and goes. Um, and yeah, definitely can outruck anybody. Oh my gosh. When I did that, that event with her, my running pace was her ruck pace. And I just looked at her. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I've never seen anything like it. No offense, but I've never seen women like that from Canada. And so when I got to meet a special operations female in the truest sense of what that means, um, mind, body, spirit, and, and just how she emulates that in her civilian life, it is 
well, her story is amazing. So we're going to share that and enough about her because I know she hates to be talked about, but when she brought you forward to me, um, I started to dive into what you guys are doing with moral compass. I started to dive into your personal life as a pilot and really just, as I said before, the selflessness and the willingness to stand up in a time where, you know, GWA is over. Terrorism doesn't exist. I'm doing bunny ears guys. <laughs> and, um, we're on the precipice of what some would call world war three, you being a nuclear weapons specialist, I have to pick your brain about this. I got to know a little bit about the world because from what it looks like on the outside, we're always um, like a one or two hairs away from somebody hitting the fuck it button. And I don't know if that's a reality, if that's a reality that's been kind of told to us, or if that is something that's genuinely happening. But for the most part, I have some serious questions for you. <laughs> right. Uh, let's back up a sec. So, um, for one, I was never a pilot. Um, I'm oh, a did engineer. you not fly? Oh, you're a flight engineer. I'm oh, so no. sorry. Yeah, yeah, I fly. And all the yeah. pilots will get upset if I say I'm a pilot. That's I mean, I, mean. Can, <laughs> I do everything. All I do is wiggle sticks. So Okay, so that's um, good enough in my books. I'm, I'm definitely, definitely better than that. <laughs> Just joking, pilot. <laughs> Don't kill me. Um, but yeah, uh, I've had quite a diverse career over the years. Um, just even my background growing up, I came from a very small town. Um, I used to believe that little house on the prairie was real and that's how people lived, you know, that's how small it was. And then when I got out into the big bright world, um, I joined the military, joined the air force and they decided that I would be a nuclear weapons specialist. And they sent me right back home to North Dakota. I wanted to see the world. I didn't want to go back there. Um, but it was it was a cool career field. Um, you know, not many people can say that they've touched, you know, the uh, the pit of a nuclear weapon and, and stuff like that. So there is stuff that's cool with that. But it just wasn't for me. I just, I needed more. I wanted to fly. I wanted to to do the stuff that excited me and to travel the world. So I did that for around four or five years and then put in my paperwork to, to become a, a door gunner on HH, HH-60 paid Hawks uh, doing combat search and rescue. Uh, and that was the best thing that I ever did. Um, it really opened my eyes to, to what, um, what being in the military really was, you know, as a nuclear weapons specialist, it was isolated. You were, you know, nobody can understand what, what you're doing in there. And everybody thinks you're wearing a lab coat and you're the scientist, right? In reality, it's just some young kids, you know, that the government gave, you know, uh, this responsibility to. Uh, so it was, it was really an eye opener for me. And I just loved it. I, I fell in love with the minute that I started flying. And of course, from there, you want to open more doors, right? And that's what I did. And I, I did combat search and rescue for around nine years. And an old mentor of mine came up to me and said, Travis, I think you could go further in your career. I think there's more options for you. And so I put in three packets, one to go over to the Army for the Green Berets, um, the Blue to Green program. 
and I put one package in to be a combat controller in the Air Force. And then I put another package in for the 6th Special Operations Squadron to be a combat aviation advisor. Um, rolled the dice. I told my wife, I said, whichever one comes first, we're just going to take that. I said, I, I need to move on from, from the combat search and rescue realm. I had done everything. I had, you know, I had peaked out, basically. I needed more. Well, I got a phone call, and they said, hey, you're hired. Are you not hired? You are selected to come down for selection um, <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> so uh, came down, uh, went through assessment, was selected, um, and spent about two years in schools with language, with uh, close quarters, battle type stuff, drills. Um, but really, the attention is on um, foreign relations. Um, and that's why we go to language schools. And it's that embodiment that the Green Berets encompass, which is by, through, and with your partner nation, right? So each um, each tasking order has a specific region. Um, I was trained in Spanish, which did me no good <laughs> um, because they immediately <laughs> immediately gave me Middle East, you know, and and perfect. There's a funny story that goes with that um, when I was in Afghanistan, but I ended up being a Middle East guy and Afghanistan became my baby. And before I knew it, I was training. I was doing some training in Czech Republic and I joined some Afghans there, some amazing individuals. And we spent about four months there and then pushed through back or pushed back to Afghanistan to set up the special mission wing which was the, by far the most elite uh, U.S.-trained helicopter unit that we've had. And they continue to do great things. Um, but I'll back up and tell this story. Yeah, the I'm going here, buddy. you got to tell me this Spanish so, story in Afghanistan. Right. So um, we were tasked with drug interdiction and counterterrorism, right? And so we, had, we were working hand-in-hand -hand with DEA, um, and other State Department uh, entities. But we had to get these individuals from the ground to a air-to-ground, ground-to-air component, right? So, and that involves the rock drills, um, crawl, walk, run method. <laughs> so uh, there's a compound. There, going. Right. And there was this compound outside of the D or outside of Cool Airport. It was the DA compound. We had set up kind of like a mock LZ and we get them from their crawl, walk, run stage. And now it's time for them to get on the helicopters and just do drills over and over and over of getting on, getting off, setting up security perimeters, et cetera. And there was this Afghan team sergeant um, that came up to me in the middle of all of this and I can't hear him. He's yelling at me. The helicopter's going. And he's like, Mr. Travis, I want to do this one in Spanish. I was like, what? He's like, I heard you spoke Spanish. I want to do this one in Spanish. Oh, no. like I trained in Spain. And I think it would be really fun. And we tried and we laughed. It was so hilarious because everybody's getting off the helicopter. This guy's yelling at him in Spanish. The Afghans are looking at him like, what the hell is going on? And 
it, it was it was one of those moments where you just look back and go, where the hell am I and how is this happening? You know, well, fast forward to now we're in the sprint stage, right? And we're going out on operations. And I was in one helicopter. I had a member from Australia, um, second commando squadron. He was on the other helicopter with his guys. And we landed to two different um, hilltops. And it's pitch black again. And I've got this team sergeant with me. He's like, Travis, I just want to yell, you know, Andiamo, Andiamo. I was like, okay, you do whatever you got to do, bud. <laughs> and we land and he yells at those guys and they all go out in their V formation. Well, we're at this plateau and it's dark again. And one by one, I see Afghans just dropping off the edge of this. Oh, no. And I'm like, holy crap, what is happening? They did not just like go off the ledge. Well, I get off the helicopter, helicopter takes off, and all I hear is people yelling and screaming like they are, their life is ending. And I call my buddy, the Aussie guy, and I was like, hey, bro, are you guys on the ground? He's like, yeah, they're really good. I was like, no, man. I said, I think my <laughs> Afghan just ran off the fucking mountaintop. He's like, no way. I was like, yeah, give me a second. And I walk over, oh. kind of jog, jog over to the edge of this. And it's at a slope of maybe 30 to 45 degrees. But these guys had lost their MVGs. They had fell, fallen off. It was their first, like, nighttime type stuff. And they're running. All they hear is this team sergeant yelling at them. And they don't understand what he's saying. They <laughs> just understand, go, 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 go. And they just kept running. Well, I look and they're holding on, like they are holding on to the side of this. And you could literally just stand up, but they didn't know because they can't see anything. <laughs> and I just started laughing and I called my buddy up. I was like, everything is all good, but you have to get over here and see this. <laughs> oh. Oh. But yeah, that's my, that's my Afghan Spanish story. So the end result is never have a team sergeant give orders in Spanish to a bunch of Afghans, especially when he's, you know, when he's an Afghan himself, because they won't understand, <laughs> but they'll oh. listen to all they, all they hear is the inflection. Right. Right. And they just go, go, go. So There's something special about those counterparts. When I was deployed uh, in 2009, I learned very quickly how useful these individuals can be and how much they really wanted to help their country, not only help their country, but help their counterparts stay alive. And they were willing to go downrange. They were willing to put their lives on the line. And when I hear about the way that we've abandoned them, um, it is is a very frustrating point to say the least. And, And we'll kind of get into Afghanistan down the road here. But for the profession that you're in, when you're working with these individuals and you're being taught completely useless languages for the most part, how does somebody go into Afghanistan that is now a rural area that speaks uh, how many different dialects across the country? Right. There's, you know, a minimum of, of five that you have. And that is, you know, if you take a New Yorker and put him in Alabama, you know, they're, yeah. they're going to have difficulties, you know, and that's, you know, speaking the same language. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of different dialects, but for the most part, you know, they, everybody understands everything, but it's, um, it's also looked upon as, you know, which language 
that they're speaking. If they're speaking Dari or or Persian, you know, that kind of puts you at that 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 uh, sociability scale. Mm-hmm. And they use that, you know, and and we do that in the states as well. Everybody, you know, around the world, each country has their own, you know, uh, Ireland, for example. Oh, yeah, that's all. Yeah. Listen, that's a whole that's a whole ball game. I served with the British, and I learned very quickly that there's, depending on your accent, depending where you're from, will depend on how much yeah. people will be willing to listen to you, take you seriously, and that that blew my mind a little bit. Just coming from. Canada and also serving with a French unit in Canada, learning very quickly how the French think that they're better than the rest of the country they're attached to and landlocked to, um, right. and their inability or want to speak English, even though they're in an English speaking country. So I can fully wrap my brain around how that is when you're speaking with other individuals, because it does place you in a, um, especially in Afghanistan, it does place you in a say a tax bracket, if you will, for those that are listening, right. but it does. And if you don't speak that dialect, the chances of you ha- sitting down and having a conversation or being heard by an elder in that tribe is, is it's going to happen or it's not. And so how does right. that develop for you? How do you run into this and start speaking all these languages? And that, you know, that was the, here's the fail point, um, in my mind, when it comes to Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, any third country that we're trying to do this advise assist um, role. And that is, if you take specialized units, um, use the the Green Beret um, uh, umbrella when it comes Mm -hmm. to training. You know, their whole role in life is to embed, learn everything about their partner nation, utilize what they have, what tools they have. If they're using spears, you're using spears. If, you know, if they're riding on donkeys, you're riding on donkeys. There is no tech. And that is what the 6th Special Operations Squadron does as well um, as combat aviation. Uh, We copied their curriculum the Green Beret curriculum and put it in place for our guys. But the emphasis that we used was on the cultural side. Mm -hmm. Um, So we spent extensive amounts of time just learning of what is right and what is wrong. How do you approach? And in the conventional military, you don't have that. You, you know, they give you, they give you a slideshow that you're supposed to look at. And now all of a sudden you can speak Dari. You know, you can say hello, bye, how are you? And they give you these cultural differences that you shouldn't do. You can't put your feet up on a chair. You can't speak to women without speaking to the men first. Well, that shit's completely wrong, you know? And that was the fail point is we gave all of our service members this pamphlet, um, this field order, and it was completely wrong. And that is a lot of the failures. You had members that, whether they were in a combat role or whether they were in a support role, they had this outlook on Iraq or Afghanistan before they ever got there. Mm-hmm. That was that was not even close to what they were going to be experiencing. Um, when you dive into the cultural aspect, it is about peace and love and, and family. You know, in Afghanistan alone, their number one is family. 
and they want to bring you in. They want you to know them. They want you to meet um, their families and hear their histories. So the only thing they got right in that conventional handbook was um, to ask how your day is going and how your family is. So every, you know, NATO country, every every service member, the first thing that they go into Afghanistan with their knowledge of their partner nation is, hello, sir, how is your family? But they don't realize that this is going to take an hour mm -hmm. because you're yeah. going to talk. Yeah. You know, if you ask that question, they're going to respond and you better be ready for that. You better be prepared for that. Um, you know, I come from a, a German and Russian, you know, family tree and growing up, if you asked one of my members how their day was, you were screwed. Yep. <laughs> you know, because they're going to tell you everything and they don't yeah. want to do that. So they, when somebody asks them how their day is, they're like, son of a bitch. I don't want to tell you about my day. I <laughs> yeah. have stuff to do, but you just asked me, you just interrupted me. And now I have to tell you. Right. So, um, you know, after studying as much as I could on Afghanistan, um, we'll, we'll back it up before going in there as, as a uh, CAA guy. You know, I'd been there many times doing combat search and rescue, and you don't get that same level of interaction, right? Uh, you're kind of you're kind of kept in the dark. You're not mm -hmm. interacting with with your partner nation. I mean, you might be saving a few lives here and there, but you know, you're not going to have a conversation when a guy's got a bullet hole in him or his missing arms or legs or or whatever. So it's you don't get that same concept. But after having been there so many times, you kind of you get a feel for it. And then after, you know, tons and tons of cultural research, um, I end up in in uh, Czech Republic, and it's me. I'm the only Air Force dude there, and I've got I had four or five Army guys with me, and then I had some Afghans. Well, with the army side, they had never really had this cultural stuff. Mm -hmm. They were all conventional guys. And I'll never forget, um, it's a buddy of mine, Habib. Um, Habib is actually flying up in, in Washington now. He flies for United. Um, but he's from Afghan, Afghanistan. And we all get into this little bus to go to the airfield. And we had a guy named Safi who wasn't quite aware of how bad he stunk, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, if you throw some perfume on, it's all good. Right. And we get on the bus and the, the American, the army guys that were with me, you know, they're cursing. They're like, gee, what the hell? This guy stinks. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Uh... And none of them realize, none of them realize that, these guys all spoke English. They thought they only spoke Dari. No. So, yeah. So we get to the airfield and Habib pulls me to the side. He goes, Travis, but these guys do understand we speak English. And wow. we've all been ground commandos and we've been fighting. They were fighting with the triple three. 
which is a UK uh, advised unit. And they're like, we've done a hell of a lot more than, than most people think. I was like, I know Habib, let me talk to him. And I talked to a couple of guys and I was like, look, you can't do this. Like, what are you doing? Like, you are about to go into combat with these guys. You're about to take them to a different level. Well, at the end of all of this, there was only myself and one other individual that actually went from that course um, with these guys back to Afghanistan. The rest were, were sent home. And, and wow. they never went back because the Afghans, they just didn't trust them. And that, and that is where that comes into play. The Afghans have to trust you. Your partner nation has to trust you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that off that first impression, you're screwed. You'll you'll never you'll never get it back. You'll never gain that trust from them. Um, and that is, I guess, that is the the forward movement I had with with the special mission wing. Um, they had heard about me before I even got there, um, and I never did the the typical um, service member bullshit. Yeah, you know. And I was never afraid of them. Why would I be afraid of them? I'm going to fight with these guys. You know, there's so many people that had this fear of, I, I can't, I can't, I can't be alone with them. Something might happen, or I have to. Um, <sighs> there's so many nuances that I saw. You know, yeah. especially when they they brought this, the U.S. Air Force and few other coalition forces they created this guardian angel program and it was for a good reason there had been a um a shooting in afghan um pilot had gotten angry and he killed multiple people jesus christ when was this this was in 2010 no 2011 i believe okay and he walked into the office and and just shot you know a bunch of U.S. Air Force personnel. So I can understand that there was this knee jerk reaction mm-hmm. of hey you you have to be separated and if you go anywhere you have to be escorted because you're on an Afghan compound. Right. You are you are the uh, visitors. So I would watch these. Uh, individuals all armored up and they would come to a meeting with their Afghan counterparts and you'd have somebody in the corner with a rifle. And I thought to myself, how are you guys getting anything done? You know, and over, over at the special mission wing where we were at, we only had seven individuals, Mm you know, um, coalition members and everything else was Afghan. And that was the, the, um, the highlighting moment for our Afghans because we trusted them. We lived with them. We ate with them. We fought with them. Um, we took them from that crawl, walk, run stage. Um, I'm putting my life into your hands. You're putting your life into my hands. We're equal. And that is why the special mission one became such a premier unit. Right. Um, but you guys have the backing. Yeah. You guys right. had that trust. You had that build. I can attest to the, the conventional fighting force having little to, I'd say less than little to no exposure to the cultural uh, 
the way that they live their life when before we even deployed, I mean, for God's sakes, you guys were in Iraq first, then Afghanistan popped off. Canada started going in as more of a United Nations kind of front. Then we started taking and losing people. We lost Nicola Goddard, which was our first um, major female uh, killed in action in a really aggressive White House attack. And it is it's written about. Um, but my point in saying all of this is by the time uh, Canada went in as a ISAF member of, you know, NATO, we were not being trained are you joking? Are you joking right. me? We, most of the time, people in my unit, we didn't speak the same language for God's sake. So the weapon systems that I was taught in service were taught to me in French. I cannot physically run a triple seven in English. I don't know how. And if that's where the failures start, can you imagine the lack of cultural education? When I went to Afghanistan and I was met with working alongside uh, the the Afghan, the ANA, there was a, a stark reality that happened. Um, the reason we all felt so, at least the conventional fighting force that I deployed with, the reason that we all felt so angry towards these people had nothing to do with these people. It had to do with the way that we were being brainwashed well before we landed in country. The slideshows we were being shown were of women being stoned to death. They were of the first three days at CAF. They take us and show us this is a big room of IEDs. Now go find them because they're using your garbage. They're using you against you. They kill women. They kill kids. They don't respect women. And if you look at a woman in the eye, she'll be stoned to death when you leave. I mean, we were only seeing the evil that lived inside of that country. Right. And it was not being explained to us in the sense of like, family is first. We never were taught how to say hello. How are you? Never. Not not once we were given a booklet that stayed in our front pockets that I didn't speak enough French to read. So when it came time to go run triple sevens, we ran them for the 101st at Rob Ramrod. That was all fine, right? That was easy. The problem became when, for me at least, the first time when I caught a Taliban member inside the FOB. So they went, that individual, that Afghani individual went to me and not the other men went to the five foot blonde woman to see well, what we can pull over. And it didn't end up working well in his favor. It ended up with a bag and a tag and a black Jeep and some people took and ran. But my point in saying this is by the time I was boots on the ground with the British and I was their CST, they didn't know how to handle a woman. Could you imagine an Afghani who is only ever seen women in a certain position of power walk in with a rifle telling you what to do in a language you don't know and i'm not giving them the cultural respect because all that i've been told and have seen is thursday nights outside of our fob and chai boys and the other things that i've seen are you killing off my people so and then i'm hearing about ana on you know ana on on us so it's like they never gave the Afghans a fighting chance because they never trained us properly to give them the respect and trust that they deserved to save their own country. Right. Yeah. 100%. Um, you, you hit every point. <clears throat> and that was <clears throat> another fail point was <clears throat> bringing in conventional forces to Afghanistan. Oh, hundred percent. You could, you know, you can do it on a, on a scale, but, we went large scale 
you know, and coalition went large scale. And that was the failure. Um, if we would have kept small teams, um, special operations units that embed, just like you're mm -hmm. trained to do, and you turn it into um, that partner nation force, just like we've done in um, every country that we've we've been involved with, right? Um, I use uh, Mexico, um, Colombia um, as great examples. You know, that's been ongoing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And they're doing everything on their own. They're fighting the drug trade on their own. And it's U.S. personnel or coalition personnel that come in every few months, <laughs> say, hey, how you doing? You know, you need anything? Can I get you anything? Um, you guys need some more training, whatever. And then you move back. <laughs> and you go to your next country. That is what foreign internal defense is. It is putting a pin in the map and going, okay, we're here. Mm -hmm. We're here to help you. Um, whatever you guys need, we're, we're going to do it in as much capabilities as we have. But we're going to use your resources. We're going to utilize what you have. So if you go back to the very beginnings of Afghanistan with the horse soldiers, right? If we'd have just kept that brain going, we wouldn't be here today. That would have this war would have ended years and years ago. And all we would be doing is sending back soft teams every now and then going, Hey, how you doing? What do you need? Right. Because the horse soldiers did exactly what soft is trained to do. And that's buy through and with capability. Mm -hmm. They utilized forces if they needed to. They utilized the ground movement. They they utilize shepherds they utilize communication with elders they utilize everything that you were trained to do and that takes years of training to get to that level you can't take a conventional force and do that again they gave you a handbook and said here you go go forth bad. and prosper right and you can't yeah. do that um and it was funny you know that you mentioned you know, the perception that is received from a from a uh, a soldier, a Marine, an airman, whatever that you want, to, a service member, when they go to Afghanistan as a conventional force, they're scared out of their mind. Yeah. First, the first time they meet in Afghan. Yeah. Because they don't know <laughs> if it's terrorist or if it's, you know, they don't know. And what they don't know is deadly and it's horrible. Um, well, that's what they did to us though. Right. So when they pulled, I'm using me as the example, because I don't like to speak on other people's experiences. So when they pulled me from there, the thing I knew and said, you're doing the thing you don't know. And you're the one in charge of the thing you don't know. And you're 19 years old. <laughs> Let's see how this works out. It's no difference than putting 18 and 19 year olds on nuclear weapons and buttons they shouldn't yeah. have their fingers on because things happen. But my point in saying that is the first time I ever experienced what my job would truly mean would be to be in a firefight, kick a door in, 
and then go and take all of the women and children and separate them from the thing that makes them comfortable, rush them into a room. And then me who looks like a small little boy, a male boy, I'm going to point you at gunpoint to take your burqa off. How do you think this was going to go well? I was only told these women are being, if we find money, they're being used to hide other things. So you need to search them. Well, I know for a fact that I, when I know some children go to bed at night, they see my face. And that's a scary, sad reality that I terrified individuals, even though I tried, I wasn't a mother at the time being a mother now, no, now though, I know I could never go back and do that job because if somebody took my child from me and put them in a separate room and started taking off the thing that keeps them safe from other people and mind you, no one else is in that room, right? It's right. just me. No wonder they fought me tooth and nail. No wonder they were screaming at the top of their lungs. No wonder they were shaking in fear because I was taking things like their Qurans and their stuff and throwing it out of the room as I was told to. Meanwhile, I'm disrespecting the one thing that they live their whole life by and not even realizing I'm doing it. Yeah. We, we failed them. What you're told to do. Oh yeah. We absolutely failed. And um, it, it, it's a failure on multiple levels for many years. It's like it was never corrected, right? It right. stayed that way all the way to the very fall of Kabul, to the gates being, you know, covered by the 82nd and the Marines. Um, all yeah. great guys and gals, they did their job. Um, but I would say, and, you know, I'm guessing, but I would say 75% of them have never been to Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, 100%. Right. And now you have this flood of civilians and and service members trying to get on, on post that deserve to be there. Well, how can they distinguish between the two? You know, right. how can they distinguish between what is right and what is wrong? They have no right. idea. You know, it was difficult enough for me. And I knew the guys that I was going out to get. Right. And for me to um, identify them and then look at them and, and see them in a different staging where they have their families, their kids with them and alive, and they're destitute, they're crying, they're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, even for me to look at them and I've, I've lived with these guys, I know these guys, it was difficult. So, Again, we failed for years on that front. And if we would have just kept it a small war um, or small teams uh, interaction, we would have gone a lot further. And we definitely wouldn't have the Taliban in control right now. Speaking um, of the Taliban, um, I saw this morning that the Taliban has reached a deal with Putin to sell all of our arms back to Russia, which I think we all saw coming. I think, I think we all saw that coming. Um, I, I don't like to sit here and try to pretend like I have 30 years of service and I am a four-star general, but what I can tell you is it's not that damn difficult to look at the situation from an outside perspective and go, well, I've been there. I've seen how it functions. I see where the failures are. For God's sake, I was there for six months and I saw where the failures lied. 
how are we in this position? How have we failed not only this nation, the next 20 years of children in that nation? And then how have we failed the American, the Canadian, the British, the every NATO force that has fought tooth and nail with us, lost soldiers, like blood, everything, trauma, you name it. How have we how have we done this so pathetically? Is it that we truly didn't care to leave equipment and that we knew this is where it was going to go? Is it that we knew if we left equipment, we need, here's my thought here. <clears throat> I said this to my husband this morning, cause I told him I'm having you on. And he said, Oh God, you're going to go on a, <laughs> you're going to go on a tangent about it. And I said, listen, I'm not, this is what I'm going to say. And what I think, I think we left equipment because number one, it was easier. I think we left equipment because how are you supposed to go in and fight another war in another 20 years if they don't have any equipment to fight you with? I also think we left equipment because we genuinely did not care about how this was going to end at all. And we don't have the forethought to think that number one, China would roll in when China was rolling in while we were pulling out. It's common sense. Most people know that. So China's rolling in the North, giving propaganda videos. So how do we not think that China would come in? And then how do we not think that eventually with the state of where Russia was sitting, that they would not come in and broker a deal with the Taliban? How, how, did I'm so sorry. I don't even do this for a living. So what are the people that do this for a living? What is their excuse? They don't have one. And that, that is something that I've, I've been saying for so long but yeah it's the how did we not see it coming how am and, i missing what am i missing right and i go back to um i had been in a couple of helicopter crashes and i didn't get to leave afghanistan the way that i wanted to when i was in the service right um so after i retired i went back as a private contractor Flew with the same unit I was flying with before, with the special mission wing, just on a different level, mm -hmm. um, in a different role. And a buddy of mine goes, why do you keep doing this? And I said, because, man, I want to go out on my terms. Like, I want to I feel that I am complete. I right. need this. And he's like, okay, you know, go, go do your thing, man. And he's like, I think you're crazy, but just go do it. You know, my wife and my family, they all know I'm crazy and they'll, you know, they, they go with it. But, um, I remember getting back in as a civilian, as a private contractor and seeing all my guys again and, and doing all this stuff and we go out and we fly and I'm just looking around and I'm like, holy cow, look how far we've come. You know, I remember Kabul being this dark and dingy place that, you know, if I was out in town, it was, you had to be so on guard, you had to be so protected. But now, and you fast forward, and this is like 2019, 2020 timeframe, and I see wedding halls lit up. I see people just enjoying themselves and having fun. And I remember coming back on my first break and I told my buddy, I said, dude, this is the best thing I've ever done. I'm never going to stop doing this. I'm going to keep doing this forever. Just seeing the changes that have come. And then roll into 
COVID time frame. I think COVID was the epicenter of the mm-hmm. world just going going nuts. Um, but around COVID time, there was the discussions of pullouts from Afghanistan, et cetera. And that's, that was fine with us. You know, I looked at it and went, you know, conventional forces be gone. We're just going to leave, you know, small teams in here. That's exactly what was needed. That's what we've all been wanting. Contractors will keep doing their stuff and life will be great. And then around January of 2021, uh, my boss comes in and my boss had spent more time with this unit than than anybody I can think of. And he's like, Travis, it's over, man. I was like, no fucking way. It's not over. He's like, dude, I've been down this road before and I've seen it come to the, the precipice and then it's back down, but this one and this one's happening. It's like, we are going to be shut down. I never believed it. And I refused to believe it. So everybody's bummed out. Everybody just kind of loses that momentum. You know, you're flying and training just to to do it, to do your job. But nobody is excited. Right. And you can see it in the Afghans. Their impression was, these guys aren't going to leave us. Right. Because we had told them we're not leaving them behind. Right. And you go to that, what you were talking about, um, with leaving equipment behind and leaving all this shit behind. Well, I got to see it firsthand of why all this shit got left behind because there was no plan. Mm. There was zero fucking plan to remove us from Afghanistan. I was fortunate enough to be in a unit and this was in Iceland. I was with the 56 rescue squadron at the time. And we moved that unit from Iceland to their unit is now in Italy. It took eight months for one squadron, Mm -hmm. one squadron. You're talking less than 700 personnel and equipment. You know, it was maybe, I think they had six helicopters at the time, maybe seven, to shut that place down and get it moved to another location. That's just one squadron. And that was um, annotating every single thing. Mm -hmm. What was left behind, what was going. Well, when this debacle, this shit show of Afghanistan shutdown happened, there was no, there was nothing. There was no, there was no orders given. There was no plan of action. Um, and I watched it unfold. And most of the the army, the air force, and the marine personnel that we had that were on our little compound, they were just as confused. Like, we really don't know. All we're told is that we need to have this in place, this place, this in place. Chalk order, or people will. And these these people will be left behind until the very final. <clears throat> so we had all these facilities, right? Whether it was a helicopter simulator, whether it was vehicles, whether it's ammunition, equipment, and nobody knew what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Well, because what are you told? What are the SOPs when you're told as a conventional fighting force, you never leave 
anything operational. You blow right. the computers, you blow the barrels, you blow everything and you start destroying everything. everything. Right. And there was no clear line of that. There was no clear line of, hey, we're pulling out. This is what's going to remain for the Afghans. This is what's not going to remain. It was that typical, it was kind of like watching uh, a really bad military exercise mm -hmm. for the first time and everybody not knowing what the hell to do. Uh, so now you get to the time that us as contractors were leaving and that was May-June timeframe. And me and my buddy who had been there forever, we flew to the last uh, helicopter line probably a week prior. And the Afghans that I had with me, they were, they were awesome, you know, and they always had like this upbeat manner to them. And we finished that, that, that flying line and they're like, hey, are we going to go fly this afternoon? And I look at my buddy Curlin and I go, what do we tell him? It's like, walking down. Oh, you know, wow. do we tell them that we're going to go fly again in a couple of days? Or do we tell them that, hey, we're leaving? He's like, they know we're leaving. They just, they don't want to accept it, you know? Wow. Um, so, again, I never thought that we as the contractor side, because everything relied on contracts. Right. You know, whether it was getting the, the aircraft to fly, whether it was supply, whether it was anything, that all relied on private contract. Right. Um, it didn't rely on the military. So I did did not believe that we were going to abandon and just disappear. Um, I didn't pack up my room until the day I left. Wow. Because I did not, I couldn't believe it. So I can't imagine that the Afghans would believe you know, and all my guys on my team are like, Travis, you're retarded. We're out of here, man. Right. Get your shit. Let's go. Um, so the day before we left, uh, I'm sitting in the compound and it's just eerily quiet. You know, there's nothing moving. And even the Afghans are scarce. They're like, what the hell is happening? I don't know what to do. And a few of them came up and they're like, Mr. Travis, uh, what are you doing? I was like, well, guys um we're just grabbing some stuff and then we'll see you in a couple months i'm going on break you had to lie to them you know and that was hard that was absolutely horrible to do because you didn't want to break their their spirit you knew that they needed to fight and they were want they were willing to fight they were this is what they did every single day yeah they fought they were born into so, it so right so for them it was yeah you know, it's kind of like the contractor changing hats, mm -hmm. you know, hey, all right, tomorrow's going to be good. You guys will be back. We'll see you, you know, in a month or two. But it never happened, you know. And I remember looking around and seeing everything that's there and going, there's no way that the Army's going to get all of this stuff no. packed away and sent, you know, because I think they're, you know, whatever the, the, the pullout date for for most was sometime in July and then there was remaining forces that were going to do the, the cleanup and it just never happened. You know, like I said, there was no plan of action. There was no direct responsibility, whether it's to the generals, to 
to um, the administrations, you know, whichever country it is, you know, all of NATO was confused. NATO did not want to leave. Most of those countries did not want to leave Afghanistan. And yet they did. And it makes no sense to me. Is it that, is it that America decided, hey, based off of what kind of went on here because of the presidential exchange, there needed to be some type of pressures to get a W very quickly just because he could not last four years and there needed to be some time where they got a win? Was it that we just genuinely didn't care because America does have a history of going into countries that they are not welcome in, fucking shit up for everyone, and abandoning them. I mean, we, I, I'm most Americans, this show is 86% American listeners. And you're going to be very angry when I say that. But the reality is that we've seen this before. We, we're going to see it again. This is not the last time. But the thing that got me about the story you just were telling was I had a hard enough time leaving the way I had to leave. So I can wrap your brain around wanting to be there and make it right. I, I, I grasp that completely. But I was not put in a position to have to look people in the eye and say, hey, not only are we about to abandon you, your entire family and the life that you built and risked everything for, we're not even going to destroy the documents with your names on them. We're going to leave them so you can be hunted down by the one enemy you've spent your entire existence and putting your life on the line to fight alongside of us. I, in my mind, when I look at America, when I look at the the Christian Catholic values that we love everyone, freedom speaking, support everyone in America and go, how the hell do you abandon human beings to be slaughtered, lambs to the slaughter and not just the men, the women, the kids, the next generation? How do you sleep at night? Yeah. And that is that is what uh, that's what moral injury is. That is the definition. And that is why so many uh, veterans are hurting. So many civilians are hurting. It's the way that it was done. It was the and you're right, the history behind the U.S. and the abandonment of the partner nation forces, um, the the commonality the common ground between all of it is is that you always have that small group force that special operations force that continues doing what the government should have been doing and that's keeping those relationships and and building upon that um at a bare minimum yeah Yeah, at a bare bare minimum. minimum yeah just get out there and do something and it's funny you know what you said as far as, you know, what did all the other NATO countries think? You know, did the U.S. need a good win for a presidential race? And it's it's politics by use of bodies and blood, right? And that is the thing that despises every service member. Because that's not what we were there for. Mm-hmm. We're there to fight for our brothers and sisters and fight evil with good right? right that's that's the basis of military um and when you look at how it all unfolded the 
the negotiations with the Taliban should have been the first um, mm-hmm. warning label. And everybody just kind of went, well, whatever. You know, it's it, it's a negotiation. It's an agreement that the Taliban aren't going to be able to to abide by. So maybe there's this this trick up the sleeve that whether it was Trump's administration or Biden's administration, it doesn't matter. It's every administration's failed us. Yeah. They always yes. do, right? Yeah. That, that never changes. They always promise and they always fail. So even going back into Kabul, knowing that Afghanistan is falling, I remember getting on the airplane and the airplane that I got on was a civilian chartered aircraft, but it was, it was U.S. sanctioned, right? It was mm-hmm. U.S. military sanctioned. So it was allowed into the stack with all of the other U.S. military aircraft. And I remember thinking, and oh, that's a lot of stuff in the air. You know, because you can see the blips, you can see all the, you know, different aircraft that are up there. And I'm like, maybe this is a genius plan. Mm. Draw all the Taliban in, bomb the shit out of Bagram, just destroy it, hit every airfield, just, you know, do a bombing campaign. And that was kind of in my mind, like, you know, maybe we're doing this. Maybe this is what's happening. Um, Writing the world, you know, with force. Right. That military power, that's what it's there for, is to to remove evil. Isn't that, though, what we've been trying to do the whole time? We would target somebody's cell phone that would be at a wedding and right. we would wipe people off the face of the earth. So why do we right. have no problem drawing them out from places that they had never left, from the north right. all the way down into this tiny little city and not just unleashing hell because you cannot win a war the way that Geneva convention allows us to fight wars. That's why wars have never been won. And that's why wars will continue with the same nations because the only way you win is by barbaric ruthlessness, murder. That's it. Whether people like to admit it or not, war is nasty. If you want to win. It really is. And that's that again, um, you can't do that on the conventional side. Nope. Right. You, you know, the the um, soft truth, special operations forces truths that you know we all live by is that you can't produce, you can't mass produce special operators. No, nope. because most you, you can't take individuals um, on the majority of a scale and give them these skills to hunt, kill, capture. um rebuild, partner with, go and fight with. People cannot wrap their head around that. It takes certain individuals to be able to do that. And you're cutting off a part of your brain. And this we can get into later on with the moral injury stuff, why Mm -hmm. some of the people are hurting right now. Um, But it's individuals like that that are that force that that break the line. You know, we've all been to the commander's calls that go, oh, you're doing awesome without you. This, we cannot do anything. Well, that's bullshit. You know, um, good job. You, you sat on the flight line and you guarded an airplane. Yeah, you 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 did your job. You'd, you, you served a role. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm proud of every service member out there, right? I'm not discrediting them, but you have to look at the, the whole picture. If we go by the conventional war methods that we did, and we throw this huge force in there, but we only allow one team to go out and actually do fighting, you're going to fail, right? And that's what we were doing. It wasn't just one team, but you had multiple teams. And then during the Obama administration, it was, all right, we'll take these soft teams and you guys will keep living with them, fighting with them, teaching them by, through, and with. But now we're going to take these teams and you're going to send your Afghans forward. You're going to send your commandos forward, but you're not allowed to shoot your weapon. You're not allowed to go in on the target with them. That's what are we doing? Failure, right? And when that message came out, it broke the spirit of every operator that has ever had to cut that piece of their brain off to become the warrior that they were. And they went, what the fuck did I do this for? Why am I here? And that was the that precipice to, um, well, now it's just a joke. Yeah. You know, here, yep, here, go have fun. Yep, that's a target. Yeah. I don't know. You just don't have that buy-in anymore. So that was the biggest failure. And that was under the Obama administration, right? And then you go into the Trump administration and it was um, hoorah, go kill, fight, whatever. But yeah. still, we did not let the dogs off the leash, right? You have these guys that if you don't let them run, yeah. they're useless. You have to work certain people. Um, I know people, when you say people are going to listen to that and be like, what do you mean dogs off the leash? What he's saying is there's people that don't exist on the face of this earth that can do things that you only, you only can imagine in nightmares. And if you really, I mean, this week at, at SHOT Show, I had a conversation with a Medal of Honor recipient, which was such a cool conversation. And I said to him, where did we fail? And he goes, he goes, when you don't let people go kill and do their jobs, they not only get antsy and go crazy, they turn on each other. They turn on themselves. Right. Right. And that is what we saw um, and we continue to see. Right. Um, so now, again, we go back into that fall of Kabul and where we're at. There's no plan for evacuation. There's no plan for anything. And shit starts going sideways. Taliban start taking territories in the south. Taliban starts taking territories in the north. First failure point that everybody knows. Hell, even a, a five-year-old knows that giving up Bagram was the, the, the biggest mistake oh. ever. And that is what led up to the events at the airport in Kabul. A civilian-slash-military right. airport. Um, sitting ducks have the facility soft City targets <laughs> absolutely there was a reason that you had small teams um, you had agency you had um, small soft teams you had small soft aviation all of that was in kabul for a reason because everybody that was there for the most part that was doing operations was trained in this right everybody that was in bagram that was conventional force that was yes put the 82nd on on the on the uh, walls put the marines on the walls that would have worked perfectly up there yep 
but in Kabul, doesn't work. So um, I had been with, I had been embedded with the FSK, it's the Norwegian Special Forces team. It's the CAG, if you may, the Delta Forces, Mm -hmm. people understand. Um, These are the most badass Vikings that you'll ever find. And you know, going back to your role and Jax's role, they were the first ones to bring a female into that female engagement team stuff. And I remember meeting her for the first time and she on her other role, she was a civilian police officer on SWAT, just a badass Viking. And um, I remember how the, the, the Afghan commandos were looking at her and we were part of the crisis response unit which is kind of like that. Again, it's that CAG. It's you have a five minute response time right. to get on that target. And she is just, whether it's shooting, running up the mountain, anything, she is kicking ass and being the epitome of this. Well, anyways, the, the FSK relationship, those Norwegians and their counterparts with the Afghans were so tight. That was the closest I've ever seen any unit by relationship with their teammates on both sides. Um, And the trust was just humongous on both sides. And it was so unbelievable to see it. It was so beautiful, right? So these guys um, forged a very, very deep relationship with their Afghan counterparts. And they didn't have a lot of Afghans. You know, again, you can't mass train special operators. Um, So out of their units, they had probably um, three to 400 that were just fucking badass. I'm talking the best of door kickers. Um, I get into Kabul. This is the fall of Kabul. it was either first or second day that I'm there and I'm out at Abbey gate and I'm looking for some of my guys and the Taliban had set up their little security checkpoint. And you have Taliban on the perimeter over here. Then you have mm-hmm. um, the Marines in the 82nd over here and the Marines in the 82nd and the air force were doing fucking phenomenal getting people right. And doing their job. They did the circumstances that they were put in is the, most intense situation that I think will ever exist. I don't think we'll ever see that again. I hope not. Um, I hope not either. And as I'm navigating my way through all of these, these crowds and people, uh, soldiers, Marines, airmen, I hear somebody yell at my name. They're like, Travis. I'm like, what the fuck knows? Who's <laughs> calling me, you know? And I see my big Vikings, and it's all the guys that I embedded with. Um, and they're like, hey, we're here. And I was like, fucking run over to them. We give our big bro hugs and all that bullshit. And then they were like, hey, come over to the compound um, and let's catch up. It's like, all right, cool. I'll see you guys tonight or whenever I get a chance. Go over there. And these guys had come in just like every special forces unit um, out there had done the same thing and they came in, they brought their biggest, baddest most ruthless individuals, right? And they brought the firepower to go do it. 
they weren't allowed to go leave the gates. Do you know how many people told me that? So again, we leashed our dogs again. We leashed our most elite fighting force and said, you're not allowed to leave. If we'd have just let them go, oh. we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are today. When, when you, so when we, when we got the call, I was sitting in the, my old podcast studio and I got a call from a former ranger from the 75th. He runs a company called combat flip-flops and he goes, Hey, you know, they Griff had educated over 800 girls in Afghan, right? Produced product there. So this got, this was personal. This was vicious for him. And he goes, we have some Canadians, um, nine, some used to run the government. I can't move them. There's not a goddamn thing I can do. Uh, I've got Americans going, but this is where we're at. When we touched base with Canada, the response was met with silence. We had sent a plane, an empty plane, to come pick up anyone, right? Snap to our uh, sad example of a leader calling a snap election, a federal election, putting a media blackout on everyone. And this came directly from CBC journalists to myself. This is not me assuming this is... Um, completely fact-checked. We had a journalist call say, we would like to, in another words, gaslight you on TV to find out how people are feeling. And I promptly shut that down. They called the next day and said, interviews canceled. We have been given a complete media blackout on anything to do with the Afghan pullout because obviously we have left Canadians. So in that time frame, we got, we had five days it was the last five days you guys were pulling people. And this is where it didn't matter who was on leashes. It showed who was going to go do what needed to be done. And we were we were fortunate enough to get in contact in seven different rooms with JSOC individuals who this is all through signal. I have no sure. clue what I'm doing, right? I'm going, where was I? What are my grid points? What do I remember? How do we do this? And we start just calling everyone we know. Long and short, through a very dramatic way, I had some Americans show up in just the most vicious way. These were guys that were X, you know, XXX, and they were just there, flew in and said, we've been told to not go get these people fuck those people we're going and they went and they risked it all for complete strangers people who didn't know me at all who didn't know these canadians who didn't care to listen to any chain of command because at this point it was clear chain of command had no clue no idea and no way to make this genuinely happen so if those guys couldn't think for themselves even for a couple seconds my family would be dead a hundred percent now yep Absolutely. And speaking of, of people that did the the moral duty, those individuals that you're, you're speaking of that said, fuck it. Right. These are lives. We're going to do this. Um, someday, and I hope it's soon, all of these stories will be told. I saw the most heroic efforts done by my former combat search and rescue family. Um, I saw it done by regular army individual Joes. I saw it done by 
regular Navy, Joes, and Marines mm -hmm. that when they took the command structure of going, hey, you do this, this is your post, this is what you're going to be doing. There was a group of individuals on multiple levels, not just, you know, not just one. And that's the one story that I try to tell is that this wasn't one group. It was multiple groups. It was, it was people, it was soldiers, sailors, Marines and right. airmen that, that signed an oath that they will give their life for others. And I saw it minute after minute after minute that these guys were doing this stuff. Uh, the only reason that civilians um, that went in and said, fuck you guys, if you're not going to do this, we're going to go do it. The only reason we get that attention is because these other guys' stories haven't been told. Not yet. Because they're still, because they're still in the military, right? Yep. And they can't. But I saw it day after day, action after action, that these guys did one what is morally correct and not only did it change the people's lives that they were saving but it changed these individuals for the rest of their life i guarantee it well i can tell you right now and i've i've spoken about this i i shamelessly do have a book out this year where i told this story uh with permission from the afghan family because we did have it all on voice notes on signal. So I transcribed it all and was given permission to, they actually, they said, can you talk about us? If you can, will you talk about us? And I said, of course I'll talk about you. But the thing that this happened for me, as you said before, I, you left Afghan, not on your terms. I left Afghan due to an injury, not on my terms. This time I was going to go back to Afghan and I was going to leave and I was going to help on my terms. So as much as those guys, Austin and those individuals showed up for me, complete stranger, I know them now cut to, they're actually friends of a couple of my friends. It's so, it's so funny how small this world is, but I tell him, and I've told him several times, I owe you a lot because you fixed a moral injury for me that I could never I could never solve. I right. could never fix on my own. You gave me that moment of, I wasn't the scary girl anymore that pointed the gun at the kids. I now right. was the person that helped the kids and helped the women the way that I should have been trained to do in the first place. Right. Exactly. And that is, that's the, the, the key right there. Um, and I'll back that up with, the, you know, the scariness of I don't want to be seen as the scary monster, right? Yeah. This was 2013 time frame. Um, uh, we had a lot of heavy fighting going on um, down near Ghazni and, and areas around that. And every time you would go in to do a hit, you were bringing just bodies out whether they were mangled, whether they were still alive, it didn't matter. You just threw every, you, you, you stacked the helicopter like cordwood with as much as you could. Right. And we're flying back at one point and I've got just a mess in the back of the helicopter of wounded, dead, and guys that were, you know, trying to, hold their hands if you may because they didn't have medical 
training, you know. Right. You know, it was it was that inshallah type right. attitude. And I'm on my gun and I look over and there's these three guys weeping over um, one individual. And you could tell he was higher ranking, obviously. And I can see that he's still got, you know, he's still got a little bit of breath in him. Still, I can see his chest rising. And about five minutes later, I see everything, you know, you, you know when a person passes. And I look right. over and I'm like, fuck. Um, but at that moment, I was like, you know what? We're not going to let this fucking happen. Mm-hmm. We're going to fix this. So I start doing CPR on this guy. And the Afghans that are with him, they're, you know, those commandos, they're, you know, they haven't been trained on this stuff. They're looking at me like, what the fuck's this guy? What's Whitey doing to our, what's Whitey doing to our general? You know, like, what is this? Is he desecrating him? This is right? bullshit, you know? <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, you know, he, he, his chest starts rising again. And I look at this young commando and I, I told him to keep doing the same thing. I said, I have to get on my gun, you know, point at my gun. I, said, I have to be on my gun, do exactly what I was doing. And long story short, we get to um, the field hospital and this guy's still alive, you know, and they saw that. And I was like, wow, all right, made a good change. You know, that's, that's, right. a, that's a good win. Um. We but that was doing, your choice. That was your choice. Right. You didn't have to do a damn thing. Right. Didn't have to do anything. And that's, that's the problem is so many people, they look at it and they go, well, it's not my problem. Right. But I saw that as, all right, this is my problem. We can fix this. We were doing around two to three missions a day during that time. It was nonstop. It was, I would get back to my bunk and 10 minutes later, my buddy Barracks, I'd be knocking on the door. Mr. Travis, we have to go. Okay. And I'm the only whitey, right? Yeah. Um, so grab my gear, get out of the helicopter, go and do this stuff. And it was one mission, and I can't remember the pilot that I had with me, but there had been a change. And they were like, Travis, you can't go out on, on your own anymore. You got to take another whitey with you. Oh, wow. Um, it's not that It's not that we don't trust our Afghans. It's just that most people, there's been a lot of green right. on blue type stuff. And we just want you to protect. I was like, whatever. How about I have me on one aircraft and I put another whitey on the other aircraft. They're like, that's perfectly fine. Go, go do that. And um, there had been a tanker that had been hit and it was just a mass CAS event. Um, and it's all Afghans. They did their best and they had brought them to a, a fog close to Ghazni. And it was just math chaos there. And one of the army docs comes up to me, American. He's like, good luck, man. He's like, we'll bring everybody out that we can. Um, You know, they were all brought here to the field hospital, but we don't have the resources. And one of the individuals that came out, um, he had been blown. He lost both arms, uh, one leg, and was just, he was burnt. Like it was, it was bad, but he was still living. He was still alive. And um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a long flight, maybe a half hour. And we get back. And again, my helicopter is just filled with blood and guts. And pilots are shutting aircraft down. The ramp comes down. And the ambulances show up. They meet us there. And 
everybody just kind of it was like inshallah, like ah, whatever. There was no rush, it was nothing. Um, I grabbed this guy and I put him on my shoulder and I'm carrying him out the back of the helicopter. And one of the special mission wing commanders is there and he takes this video of this whitey, this American doing this and watching all these other commandos just fucking going on about their day. The next morning, he briefs all of his guys and goes, if Mr. Travis can do this, you guys can do this. Right. And it changed everything. We ended up, um, from that point on, having um, flight medics that would go out on missions with us. Um, the ambulances were prepped for that mass CAS type event. And, um, you know, anybody that's been in Afghanistan knows that Afghan medical care is bleak. Is raw. <laughs> it is. <laughs> It's it's not the best care in the world, but we started seeing these casualty rates drop, and we started seeing people returning back to the battlefield. Um, and it was that change. It takes that one person to make that change. And now we go back into the fall of Kabul, and I can attest that most of the individuals that were on the ground that were saving lives, that were going above and beyond, had no connection to those Afghan counterparts. Zero. Yeah. They had a they had a personal connection, whether it's with God and country, mm -hmm. um, and for humanity. And they saw the the desperateness. They saw the the evil that was surrounding mm -hmm. everything. And instead of letting these people fall through the gates of hell. They went in, and it's been said so many times, they came in like angels. They were my right. angels. They grabbed me. My mm -hmm. angels grabbed me. They didn't know who they were. All they saw was this hand coming and grabbing them. That is, if, if, if that portrayal could come out to the American public, to the world public, it would change mm -hmm. the face. I think it would bring that moral irresponsibility that we've had lingering over us for a few years now. I think it would show the world that there is good. And to have good, you have to have people that fight. And 100%. those people that fight are those ones that we need to let off the leash and go do their stuff. Yeah, well, we need to start right. leading from the front and leading by example. I don't know when yes. that stopped happening. I don't know when that idea of, of showing up uh, no longer was important to others. I um, I spoke to Stuart Scheller on the podcast a uh, handful of weeks ago now, and um, him and I had some conversations about the, the general failures, what what was done wrong, what was done right, how we can do better, where the accountability needs to lie. And I think the biggest thing I took away from that was no different than this. We failed, period. And okay, take the failure. Stop pretending and trying to act as if we didn't and then go, okay, we failed. How do we not fail ever again with our children's blood on our hands? For God's sakes, that war went on. I was 11 when the towers went down. And I fought in that war. What? Why did it take that long? Why did it take that many generations? Why have we abandoned people 
who were so willing to fight for us because all that that shows is the rest of the world that we will come in with false promises. And when things get hard and politics get in place, we will 100% without a shadow of a doubt abandon you to die. So who's going to want to trust you again? Who's going to want to work for you? This is why Russia acts the way Russia acts. We are soft individuals who abide by a different type of code and will not, and we've shown we will not do the hard thing when the hard thing needs to happen. And service members will, for sure. But those above them, will always be more more concerned about their rank their their finances being pushed out how they're perceived in the world but i can promise you and i've said it before and i'll say it again every single general that touched that war every single full bird every single person who had a role in what happened no one's going to forget your name and it will not be in a good way we will make sure that you die in infamy to let others know that we cannot act this way ever again yep yeah so and um general donahue um he was the the commander on the ground there right and he was handed this shit sandwich Mm -hmm. you know and said hey you have a few weeks i would say and his story will come out someday too and the way that he was able to approach it and to to allow but not allow certain members to go and do the stuff mm-hmm. to save people. Um, whether it's, hey, I don't know what's going on over there. I didn't see yeah. anything. <laughs> I see no evil. I hear no evil. I, hear I no speak evil. no evil. I don't know who you are, Travis. Go away. Right. You know, whether he did that to individuals or not. Um is what saved a shit ton of lives. Um, now you back that up to what you're saying is, you know, where is, why is nobody taking responsibility? And I go back 10 years and mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I could see our leaders failing because as long as you were there, you got promoted. Correct. Right. You didn't yeah. have to do anything special to get promoted. Nope. You just had to, you had to show up to work. That's it. You didn't have to come up with a plan of action. So every commander or every uh, um, military leader that came into Afghanistan was handed a folder mm-hmm. and said, hey, it's yours now. And they would just reinvent the fucking wheel. Yeah. And they would go back to that, pull the book out of my pocket. Oh, yes. Hello. How are yeah. you? And that is the failure. But they did it year after year after year after year. Yeah. Foreign internal defense is you take the exact same individuals, you take this face, and you put it back in there every mm-hmm. year. You don't put new faces in. And that's where we failed. That is the failure. Um, because, again, they were reinventing the wheel, thinking that they knew what was right. Right. Um, now after all is done and said and general donahue has to step on that last flight and it's the last american soldier to leave afghanistan that is when the real work should have began to make sure that this never happens again how can we say that he's the last american to leave afghanistan when there's americans in afghanistan right now 
American soldier. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. But he was the Mm -hmm. last fighting force American soldier. Correct. Let's put it like that, right? Okay. Um, So now the shit sandwich has happened. You can't unfuck it. What do you do now? Right. Not a single general stood up and said, we fucked up. Oh, God, Not a no. single person from the administration stood up and said, we fucked up. Nobody. Instead, they touted it as a victory. They touted it as, it was a great, we saved so many lives. Bullshit. You didn't. You killed and you put people on a list for the rest of their lives. <laughs> right, right. Um, oh. And I remember... I remember leaving Afghanistan and going, what the fuck is going to happen next? Because it was the most hollow feeling. Like everything that I had done up to this point in my life just disappeared. I felt the blackest hole and went, what the fuck do I do now? Um, And if military leaders or or administrative leaders if they would have just admitted to the fuck up if they That's would right. have come out and said hey um we lost 13 members because i fucked up but they didn't like we lost 13 members that day and that was preventable. That were, it was absolutely preventable. And for those that were on the ground, um, that were at Kabul, you know, the the alarms of incoming are, you know, um, enemy through the fence type stuff. That was it was every five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was something that you couldn't prevent. Um, and it was a dark, dark place, um, almost something out of a movie. Um, and those 13 members that lost their fucking lives, you're right, they, that, that never should have happened. That corridor where they were killed at, I walked that corridor every day for three years. That's, that was my entry from our hotel onto, onto post. Um, so I knew that fucking whole area like the back of my hand you know and i remember working walking through that first gate and going holy shit why did they give up this gate why is this here why do we have this corridor this this pinch point Mm -hmm. and on the other side of that pinch point you had the taliban and right next to the taliban you had uk forces the riot control forces that were holding one of the hotels the fact that we didn't push that out and utilize that string of hotels for our own benefit is beyond me. Instead, we created a point to where everybody's stuck in this this little box. This hope point. Yeah, it was the it was unreal, and you could see it and. 
you could feel it. You could feel it in the air that shit was going to happen. It was a matter of time. Anybody that will tell you that have served on the streets of Afghanistan or in these rural areas, you don't sit still in an open air area like that. For God's sakes, I'm a gunner and I know that. Right. Yep. And it was unbelievable to me. Um, And there was at one point it was a congressman or a fucking whoever it was, somebody. It was some fucking high-ranking person. Talking or head. high administration. Yeah, talking head. And one of the one of the team members um of the same team that you were working with, he saw me and I was going, I was near the UK entrance point, and I was going to grab one of my guys, and he's like Travis. He's like, what are you doing, bro? And I was like, I need to go get one of my guys. He's like, I'm stuck here fucking escorting this guy around. Mm-hmm. He's like, can I come with you? I was like, fucking you, absolutely. <laughs> you know, he, he, he just, he's stuck there following. This guy is a badass. Like, yeah. Yeah. A fucking badass. And he's tasked with babysitting this fucking person. That's there to make a show. And of course, that guy never made a show of anything because all of it was bullshit. Right. But um, again, back to, you know, the, the parameters that were there. There's no way in hell any of this would have happened in any situation to allow you or, or me or, or any individuals to have Um, set up those positions of fight, those right. security points. Right? They were they were destined to fail. Right. It was almost like watching the fucking Alamo. That's what it was. Yeah, because you knew it was a matter of time. And all you could do, all those, all those guys on the wall could do, is wait. They yep. had targets in their sights. Mm-hmm. They're watching the Taliban mow down fucking civilians left and right. They are watching the Taliban point the fucking weapons at them. They beat the hell out They're of our three year old with the uh, buttstock of an AK 47. Right. And just multiple fucking instances of, of shit like that. Um, yep. there's, there's one Taliban member, and I'll, I'll never forget his face. And, and hopefully someday he'll get mm. his reckoning. Um, but that guy touted me like he would just look at me mm-hmm. and basically he's telling me to fuck off. Yeah, is what he was doing. Of course. And you know, I took pictures of him, and of course he got pissed off. Good, keep and those then, photos. You know, throws you know throws his weapon up. I was like, you are not going to shoot me. I'm not fucking dumb, you know? Um, but they would shoot everybody else around you. You know, they had no problem doing that. Um, yeah. We were getting reports from um, Intel on Signal. We were getting... The thing that drove me nuts about this the, the bombing was we had reports coming to me 18 hours before that car bomb went right. off. So right. how and- am I sitting in Vancouver in a cul-de-sac and I know about this? Right. So, um, 
all of those, you know, mom and pop Intel rings that, 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 that came about, which truly deserve like a fucking, um, a five-star review on the intelligence. They should be hired by all intelligence committee committees because it was the, the civilians that utilized signal, utilized. Waiting for that um, call. Just waiting for that yeah. call still. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, using fucking Google maps, using yep. trackers. I mean, everything was done. Like it was this, whatever movies these people had watched, like spy games. Yeah. A lot of these people had no military background, no intelligence background. They picked it up really fucking quick. Yeah. And, you know, with some guidance of some, some very professional people, this network was built, this signal. Um, and, uh, intelligence was being run by moms at home, dads at home with their children, you know, before school. But yeah, um, so that same intelligence network had hit me up and said, hey, you know, we got reports that, you know, there's going to be an idea. Yeah, you know, there's gates being shut down. These gates are being closed. I'll keep you posted on, you know, what I'll be able to do. So we had a network set up that didn't necessarily need to use the gates, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it didn't really, it didn't, that part didn't impede what we were trying to do. Uh, it slowed the process, but at the same time, that intelligence was getting out to all the Afghans as well, that there was something mm -hmm. bad going to happen. So now these crowds are kind of they're backing away. And I remember the night before that, it, it, they had really calmed down a lot. And I went through the Abigate and it's fucking weird. Um, it's pitch black. There was a huge, you know, the moon was full. And in this, you've got the walls. So it's pitch black with the, with the shadows. Um, so you can't really see what you're coming up on. And I'm looking for some of my individuals that sent me their, their, uh, they dropped a pin for me and I'm out there looking for them. I'm like, nothing's making sense. I can't find you guys. I'm like, we're in the canal. We're in the canal. I was like, bro, I'm in the fucking canal, man. You know, I don't <laughs> see you. And this went on for like two hours and it's four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, fuck, I, I, I gotta get out of here. I gotta, you know, take a break, get some rest. I was like, hey guys, stay where you're at. We'll figure this out tomorrow. I need to fucking get a break. Mm -hmm. Of course, those guys, I've never heard from them again. I'm assuming that they died, you know, the next day and that last. Um, yeah. But again, it's that preventable measures. We mm -hmm. knew that shit was going to happen. Um, the guys on the gates, the guys in the guard towers, there was, uh, there was a soldier that was out there, a, either a soldier or a Marine, I can't remember now, but their stories are starting to come out. They're starting to talk, which mm -hmm. is great. It is. Uh, and he's telling the story of him being up in the watchtower, you know, and he's on his 50 and they've got this fucking guy in the sights. You know, they could have taken them out days before. They knew that shit was going to go. They, they, they knew. They were being briefed daily that shit was getting bad. Um, 
I think in a lot of people's eyes, I don't think people thought it could get any much get any worse. But I tell you, when that bomb, when that bomb hit, you could see and feel the fear throughout that entire um, airport. Things changed quickly. That? Tones changed Just fast. Like, oh, it does, man. It does. And it went from <sighs> young guys that had been there, young guys and girls that had been to Afghanistan for the first time to they're now hardened seasoned. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it changed. They the, went into work. The switch switches. And when that's the, when that I talk yeah. about that moral injury, when that, flip happens that something i want to say dies in you but something switches and now every afghan you look at is the threat now every person you it doesn't matter if they have a smile on their face they are a threat and you can't help but think feel and walk that way afterwards and that changes your tone with them your patience level your ability to do things you would have done before it changes everything it really does. It it does, and it's a great um, you know, turning point into the moral injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough, you know, to spend a lot of my career in combat search and rescue and seeing the worst of what humanity has to bring. You know, um, and you know, you get a, a wounded person on an aircraft, it's a wounded person. You get a wounded child and it changes the way you look at fucking everything. Mm-hmm. And this is 2009 time frame um, down in Tarrant Cow, uh, which was it was a hotbed for fighting um, because of the region and where it is with you know proximity to mountainous areas. Get a call, get a nine line that comes in and Immediately launch, it's two, three o'clock in the morning, dark night. Uh, get the light from the, the team. We land, and one of the team members comes up and he's waving. I'm like, dude, just fucking, you know, what do you got? Bring it, you know, bring the guy. PJs go out, they're setting up their stuff, they're going to their, uh, uh, there, there was a casualty, a US casualty, and they were going to grab him. Well, this other team member from the soft team has this child in his hands. And he's like, I, he, he's waving me to come out of the road wash. So I go out and I grab this kid, bring him into the helicopter. And, you know, I'm on MVGs, on goggles, night vision. And, you know, we have blue lights, you know, mm-hmm. the, the low intensity blue lights. He's got this kid down. And he's not screaming. He's not crying. He's not doing anything. He's just like looking at me like, who the hell is this dude? What's on your face? You know, got these big green eyes. Um, so I think he's fine. Like there's nothing wrong. Like, okay, we're just getting this kid out of here. So sun down, kind of holding him and I'm on my gun. I've got one hand on him, one hand on the gun. And then they bring in the team member and a female. And the female, she's got her burka on. Um, and she's just screaming, you know, she's crying, screaming. She had been shot multiple times. Jesus. Um, so the the Jays are going through their assessment of her, trying to find bullet holes, all this stuff. And I'm looking over at this kid, and I see, you know, I'd moved him a little bit. And I saw, like, this black 
on the on the floor of the helicopter. I was like, he shit himself, you know, like this kid's scared. He, he shit himself. Yeah. Again, it's blue lights, right? So you can't really see what everything is. Well, he had been shot three times himself. Oh, for God's sake. I had no fucking clue. I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, and then I look at myself and I've got blood all over me. Yeah. And we get back to the fob and um, it was a roll one, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of medical care, but they were able to save both the female and uh, the child, the boy and the service member. Um, but there's a picture of this little boy holding a teddy bear that somebody sent to me. And that, that like that flipped my switch immediately. Like I looked at everybody as a, as a target. It didn't matter. Like if I was out and I knew I was in a bad area, everybody was a fucking target. It didn't matter. And if, you know, um, if a stray bullet went a stray way and just happened to fucking take one out, it did not bother me one fucking bit, you know? And that plays a mental toll on your on your brain and on your on your conscious on your everyday life Mm -hmm. and if you continue to do this stuff and you continue down this route it just gets darker and darker and darker and the less you feel um and the farther the connection that you once had with friends and family disappears because now you're going down this savior right or savior role of I'm trying to save myself. And that's where that tunnel vision comes into that black and white vision, that dark gray. And before you know it, you're lost. Yeah. But everybody's telling you, hey, you're great job, man. You did awesome. You know, and you're like, fist bump, fuck yeah. You know? And then it's quiet, you know, and then you're in your house alone or you're in your bunk alone. And you're like, I'm not all right. I'm not good. And you try telling people that and, and everybody's like, oh, Travis, man, you're the most resilient guy I've ever met, bro. You, you got this. You'll bounce back. Yeah, I will. You're right, guys. I'll bounce back. You do that for five, seven years. Yeah. And then the game's over. You don't have right. any more quarters to throw in that machine. And it's time to take that uniform off. Right. Okay. Let me try the civilian life out. You know, let me see what's out there. <laughs> and you're highly disappointed, right? You're just, you're immediately fucking, yeah, you are so disappointed. You're like, well, fuck, I need something else. I need to get back into who I was. Mm-hmm. Even though it hurts so much to be who I was, I need to get back into that. And that's where people find drugs and alcohol and bad shit, right? And now they're stuck in another fucking battle. And right. that's when um, death comes knocking on their door. Right. And that's the, the, the fight that we keep losing. Now that is just, that is the one piece of the puzzle that is there with any conflict with any war with any battle-hardened um, service member that's without adding into the fucking debacle 
of the pullout yeah. of Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. That is that is just everybody's. Now you add in this fuck up that we did in Afghanistan. It is compounded it, and that is a moral injury. Now we are at a point of this is not fucking PTSD. This is not anything like it. This is a fucking moral injury. This is I can't escape it. I I can't get away. I'm living in Florida in the house that I built in 2015, the dream house, and I can't fucking enjoy it. Yeah. You know, I, I can't, I can't go out on a weekend and meet up with friends or go to dinner with family and not think of all the bullshit. So how do you get past that? Um, and that's what we're really trying to figure out right now is, um, the 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 medical facts we need we need psychologists we need doctors we need all this stuff and i've put a team together um a moral injury team of service members and and close proximity psychologists and they're working on it and they're trying to figure it out and and i'm hoping by the end of the year that we have not necessarily a diagnosis but a separation for these individuals that when you go to the VA or you go to the doctor, they're not telling you you have PTSD. They're telling you that you have a moral injury and right. that these fucking drugs that turn you into zombies will not work. It takes more than that. Do you think um, that that's going to be successful with how much overprescribing and how much money is made through Veterans Affairs as vending machines? And that's why we have to make a change. We have to make a stand. And this year, I think this year alone, um, we're going to see a huge advancement of yeah. people coming together. Everybody is, everybody's tired. If I talk to anyone, and I'll just you know start with Afghanistan. If I'm speaking to anybody that's dealing with Afghanistan, their first words to me is, "Travis, I'm tired." Yeah. Like I have hit my fucking breaking point. I don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Talk them through that. And it's just, again, it's like back in the beginning of, hey, the boys are, you've got this, Travis, you're resilient. We got it. All right, I'll, I'll jump back in. And I'm now having to do that with volunteers. And that's not right. Yeah. I shouldn't have to do that. Um, so I do think that there's going to be a, a change, um, a policy change, if you may, in morals, I think the American public, I think the world public is fucking tired. They are exhausted. Mm -hmm. It's every day you wake up to just some bullshit news story or you wake <laughs> up to, you know, whatever it is. Like people aren't enjoying life. And the reason they're not enjoying life is because they don't know how to, to gain that back. They're stuck in that dark place. Well, the only way to come out of that darkness is with light, right? Right. And the only way you get out of out of that darkness is with surrounding yourself with good people. And 100%. And if you don't have that faith, whether it's in God or within um, your, your brothers and sisters, you're never going to come out of the darkness. You're always going to be stuck there. Mm -hmm. um, there is, and this hit me really, really hard, uh, 
think it was in August, I was scrolling through something and I saw this cross and in the cross, if you can imagine at the very bottom of the cross is a man and he's reaching out his hand, he's stuck. And at the middle of the cross off the arm is another man holding onto his arm. And from the top of the cross is another man holding his arm, holding the arm of the second individual. And it's, you know, a team effort to pull that one person up. And that's what we have to look at through the, the veteran community and through the civilian community that is that is involved with everything. Um, we have to find that reaching hand. And where does that start? Well, to get that support without those stupid drugs that turn you into zombies, it comes with um, that support network. And I think, uh, I'm confident that by the end of the year, we're going to have that a big enough reach um, throughout the veteran community that there is going to be steps in place to help people. Here's the thing. They just, they, yeah. You're going to like this. Well, maybe you're going to like this and not like this. There's almost 50,000 active 5013Cs dedicated towards veterans in America. Guess who don't talk? Right. The 50,000 nonprofits that have access, <laughs> resources, individuals, right. tools, and people that could be saving lives. Yet somehow in a two decade war, we have garnered all of these organizations, all of this funding, all of this support, and we are dots on a map and it is not spreading. I've said this before, I've said it to a million people, it would be a heavy lift. But what in my opinion you need is you need one meeting one time a year in some weird ass hotel where all of the heads of major, whether it's for-profit veteran companies that are owned, non-profits, coalitions, NGOs need to sit down in a room and go, hey guys, what's up? Let's exchange numbers because I might have someone that needs you and you might have someone that I need. So how do we start utilizing each other in the ways that are actually making the difference? Because I can tell you right now, it didn't go from 22 to a day to 44 over nothing. That happens for a reason. There's a failure in the system. How do we fix the system when we're already all in place? Yep. Yeah, 100%. You... Again, you nailed it. It's like you're reading my thoughts and reading my mind. This is um, what I do, man. The exact same thing I was going to go to. I get calls weekly from a nonprofits, um, whether they they have a fishing voyage for for veterans or they uh -huh. have you know some kind of thing. Okay, you know that's great. Love what you guys are doing. That's awesome. Um, and I have often thought of how can we bridge that and bring everybody together under this one. There's umbrella. a way. That is also the precipice of why I built Moral Compass. There's 21 organizations, right? I was tired of, of having to call each organization and go, hey, what can you do? What can you do? And then have so many of them fail me. So um, started, you know, small and, and grew and, you know, selected these groups by their experience and by who they are. And, you know, we talk about that small world. Everybody knows everybody from something. Um, the last moral injury conference that we did down in Tampa, um, I brought up to the team and said, look, what we need is an identification 
for our veterans, for our generation. Um, Vietnam veterans have the VFW, they have the American Legion, they have, you know, there's groups out there, but our generation doesn't have anything. We don't have an identifier, right? So the end goal, the end state, like you're saying with all of these 50,000, that is your VFW, if we can all come together. That is your American Legion, if we can all come together. And we can identify under one flag, one one commonality. And the biggest thing that I said is, if you take the veteran, once they're out of the military, whether they separate or they retired, you're a veteran. It doesn't matter what your MOS was. It doesn't matter what your AFSC was. You're a veteran. So what is the face of that veteran? Is it that long-haired, hippie, tattoo-looking guy? that everybody wants to be and be cool like and mm -hmm. say that I was a shooter and you know mm -hmm. I'm cool. No, that's not the veteran. That's that's a portion of the veteran. There's also that individual, like I was talking about before, that might have guarded an aircraft on, on the flight line or pushed papers at a desk. They're a veteran. And once you're a veteran, you're all on the same fucking line. So there's 50,000 organizations out there to help you. Let's build this. Let's put it together as one. Well, the failure lies in the ego, right? Because right. you've got 50,000 organizations who have veterans in them, running them, doing parts of their job. But then you have 50,000 egos in a room, right? Because whether we like it or not, most of us are a type A personality. Most of us are a take charge personality. Most of us are the type that we lead from the front. And if you have not done enough self-work, looking inward, I utilize psychedelics to do this. This is a big component of my healing and getting off of pharmaceutical medication. If you do not truly sit in front of the mirror and see the ugly things yeah. of yourself, you are always going to have your ego show up first. And that's what you see in this community. And I have no issue calling it out. I'll tell people right to their face. The reason yeah. why you're in the position you're in is because you can't tell that thing to take a back seat. It can be there but it doesn't have to be there when it comes to helping, healing and helping people move forward. So yep. this doesn't, in my opinion, this also take it for whatever it's worth, needs to also include these for-profit companies that are supposed to be the leaders in this corporation and this identity of what does it mean to be a veteran? It doesn't mean that you need to go in the back of a, um, a Tesla with mini guns and have big tattoos like Matt Best and all these guys and rah, rah, rah. It can also right. mean the mom down the street with the four kids who runs an at-home coffee business, like Mississippi coffee lady, it could mean it's the person that volunteers. Cause that's really the only time they have because now they're a single parent because so-and-so decided they were going to check out and take their life because the support systems were not put in place because they all thought that person was, was the tough guy. That guy would never do it. That guy would never be the one to take his life. Those are always the first motherfuckers to do it because they yeah. are never the ones that feel safe enough and, that they can have a space to be vulnerable and actually genuinely ask for that help. Yeah. It takes one time a yeah. year for us to show up for each other one yeah. time. And we will drop that 44 a day down to fucking nothing. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. I agree on it. Um, um, I've often, you know, been described as a visionary leader. I can, I can come up with, you know, a, 
I can see it in my mind of how it should be, you know, laid out. And it takes those action leaders to, to make that happen. If you, if you were smart enough and actionable enough to create a 501c3, you're smart enough and actionable enough to grow that into a bigger team. And again, you know, that model of moral compass that is proven to be able to do this with, with very little money um, and very little support. Yet, you know, we're known throughout Congress, we're known throughout Senate, we're known throughout government entities because of the people that were chosen right. for those individual groups, those 21 organizations that each bring a key to the or a piece to the puzzle. Um, and, you know, this realm, whether it's resettlement, you know, we have Amy Martin from React DC, and she's kicking ass with resettlement stuff. You have um, our third country personnel, that that is their piece of the puzzle, and they're kicking ass. You have the moral injury team, select individuals that have that piece, they're doing it. And when you look at, you know, 50,000 organizations, you're going to see redundancy. Mm -hmm. What well, there's redundancy, then there's room for a team, right? Yes. So now you're just building more teams. And before mm -hmm. you know it, you have a small ODA team. You have a 12-man team, a 12-organization team. But they have to come together. And, and to be able to do that means that, that funding has to be there. And that has to come from whether it's generous donors or our government actually does what it says it's supposed to do and take care of its veterans. And instead of pushing all of this money into pharmaceuticals, they push into the research of psychedelics, for example. Right. Um, that's just another team. But they're As not doing it. And I think the, the answer to that is that identification of our generation of fighters, who we are. We need a name. We never got a welcome home. Vietnam never got a welcome home. You know, so we're all in this fucking limbo. Of, well, is it over? Nobody's tapped me out. Nobody said, hey, yep. you, your time is over. You can go golf or whatever the fuck people want to do. Um, nobody said that yet. That's why we're and all I taking think, this on personally, because none of us right. know what else to do with ourselves. We don't step right. into the civilian world and go, this is now my life, because we know in the back of our minds, our friends are dying left, right and center. You can't just right. leave that there. You can't just all of a sudden shut that switch off. My brother, my sister, that doesn't work yeah. that way. Right. Right. And again, the switch that that switch that you have um, and therapies i just want to hit on this real quick you, you said psychedelics um another great one is the stella ganglion block yes fantastic results it's fucking amazing and i did it for the first time at walter reed back in 2014 and i was with uh the people that were in my group were east coast guys um dev group guys and we had no idea what we were getting it was experimental at the time um what a change. Oh my crap. Like I, I saw colors again for the first time. Um, so after everything up at Walter Reed, get discharged, come back down to Florida and they don't have this available, you know, and they're fucking, I go to this lum doc on, on post and 
he tries killing me by giving me this thing because he has no idea what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So I contact Walter Reed and they're like, hey, we're going to find your doctor. They found me one down here. His name's Doc Stein. He's fucking amazing. And uh, I still get him every every six months. Yeah. And what a fucking... I, I know when it's time because I can see the television yeah. coming. I can see black and white coming. Um, and if I don't get it, it is horrible. It is. It's almost like uh Boehner and the Hulk you know mm-hmm. you, yeah. you change and you don't even know it you have no idea you don't know you're changing and then all of a sudden that adrenaline k- kicked off and you're back to a normal drip and you're mm-hmm. back to yourself and how do you keep that going how do you how do you express that to every other veteran out there that hasn't heard of it or doesn't have access to it you do this. Um, yeah. And yeah, exactly. And you the talk. VA doesn't pay. Yeah. You have to talk. You have to, you have to figure it out. Um, VA does not pay for Stella Ganglin blocks right now. Um, it's in the works to get that changed. And I hope, I really hope it does because that it's an eye opener. Drugs has turned me into a fucking zombie. Mm-hmm. And you've been there. Um, sitting in my garage, I sweated. What the fuck am I sweating Mm-hmm. you know and you, you you're just a zombie you're not even there and that needs to stop there's well, so many being, other ways they're being haphazard yeah they're being used haphazardly i was put on them while in country and then put back on a machine gun so my point in saying that is dangerous behaviors lead to dangerous outcomes and then people wonder why individuals struggle so hard or switch to opioids it's because they have to numb the pain which then turns into the opioid addiction which Vancouver has the largest opioid overdose population in all of the world. We single-handedly emptied our psych wards onto the streets of East Vancouver and said, deal with it. With the most damaged individuals, we have one in three are a homeless veteran in Canada. Okay. We don't have, uh, we're just now I've, and I've recently just heard of this and here's what's wild. I'm very often considered uh, a loud voice in Canada coming from up here going, our hat's on fire. You guys are going to burn with us, right? Um, And what I've just found out recently is that CAMH and there is a Vancouver location that are working to do TBI treatments. Well, I'm sorry. I've been out since 2011. And you know what I had to use for resources? I had to call Defenders of Freedom run by Donna Cranston. And she goes, I don't care what country you fought with, you deserve help. And they flew me from Canada to Texas to do TBI treatment with with Resiliency Center with Doc G and Doc Eisenman because no one up here cared. Canada doesn't care. We offer medical assisted in dying in lieu of treatment. We are now killing our veterans instead of offering them treatment as of 2019 and then having the federal veteran affairs minister lie to the people on the West block and say, there's only ever been one veteran when I know handfuls of them. And I've listened to the audio recordings of them offering it. And then I'm getting messages from cops who are RCMP officers going, I had to pick up a veteran. He was suicidal. I sat with him in the ER. And when they walked up to him, instead of saying, let's get you checked in, let's check your blood work. Let's see where your hormone levels are at. He, I have the message. I'm actually releasing it today. I said, can I share this? He goes, absolutely. They go, why don't we exercise your right for maid? 
you're telling the most vulnerable, damaged, down in the dumps, low individuals at their moment when they need a hand, we will kill you to make the pain stop, but we will not help you. That's where we're at. That is where Canada is at. And you, my friend, are just a hair away from it. And the fact that it hasn't been offered yet or hasn't been spoken about being offered yet, it's coming. It's coming for your people just the way it's come for my people. And I hate to break it to you. If people like us do not stand up and start screaming about it, we are going to lose more than we've ever lost. Let's put it into perspective for the listeners. Since the Afghan war has popped and gone, we have lost four times more people to suicide than we have lost in active war. Now, for example, if we lost this many people to something that affected civilian population, this shit would have been solved a long time ago but we are disposable numbers and we are your children's generation. And we are the people that no one cares if we get better. Cause we're the ones that go do the bad things. Right. When I had a famous celebrity reach out to me on a DM the other day, it wasn't to say, Hey, you know, some of the work you've done has been good <laughs> or, Hey, we're willing to help. Or, Hey, how do I help you with your platform to save others? It was your what's wrong with the world because you went and fought in somebody's war that you had no business being in. That's how civilians view us. They don't care yeah. if we stay. Yeah. It's, it's fodder. It is. That's what, that's what a veteran is. Right. Um, that's why Marines typically do their four to six year hitch and they get out. That, that's why it's a small unit or a small um, service because they're used for one thing. Yeah. Kill, 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 right? That is what a Marine is set up to do. Um, and the veteran community is set up in that same way. We're going to use you. We're going to yep. abuse you. And then when we're done with you, you're going to have your life back. But you're not going to be the same. Um, an analogy was brought to me years ago. Um, when I was retiring, because every veteran out there goes, I, you know, I'm good. I'm strong. I'll make it through it. And then when you get your disability rating back and you're like, fuck, man, you know, I can still do stuff, you know, mm-hmm. you know, rate me at, a, you know, a hundred percent. Well, I'm not in a fucking wheelchair. I'm not missing limbs. My mind's fucked up. My body's fucked up. You know, I've got 10 surgeries under my belt, but I can still function. I can still do stuff. The guy looked at me and he goes, Travis, when did you join us? When I was 18. And he goes, um, if I rented a vehicle for 21 years mm-hmm. and I went to turn it in, would I have to pay for the damages to that vehicle? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because, well, that's what the government does with you. So they are paying you for the damage that they did to your body, to your mind. That is what your disability is. So I, I, I wish they would remove the, the stigma of this is your disability compensation mm-hmm. to, um, to something else, some, some other nomenclature that goes, right. we fuck you up. And we can't help you anymore. There's, you know, 
this is what you have. From there, I think it would change the aspect and those 50,000 organizations that we have out there that receive grants, they receive mm -hmm. funding, they receive all this stuff. You would see that, that organizations, organization of organizations, a team of teams come together mm -hmm. um, and go, only you and I know what's going on. Right. It's, it's, it, when you sign that dotted line, you become family and everybody knows that. And when you have that individual that is at that breaking point, they're going to find a way. They're going to smoke themselves. And if you offer up an easy way out. They will take it. That doesn't, people will take it in the heartbeat. You mean all I got to do is lay down on this bed and go to sleep and all the mm -hmm. pain is gone? Mm -hmm. Sign me up. I'm all about it. Mm -hmm. I'll go to Valhalla, right? You know, that's the mm -hmm. new fucking catchphrase. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not it. And, you know, when, when, when an individual takes their lives, their life, they're taking multiple lives. They're mm. taking the lives of their friends, their family, their loved ones. And it continues for generations. Oh. I wish people would see that. I wish people in the moment of darkness where they can't see 10 minutes from now. Right. I wish they would see the daughter walking down the aisle without her father. I wish right. they would see the mom carrying seven grocery bags, just trying to get to month's end. I wish they would see the single dad who now has to explain to her daughter why, why mom can't be there to help her. Um, and why, why they're hurting so bad, why they weren't worth living for. But how do you explain that to a child? How do you explain right. that to somebody who can't fathom every breath when every breath feels like a ton of bricks, when every, every time you have to crawl out of bed, it feels like the hardest thing you have ever done in all of your life. When everything spins so far out of control that you don't care if you walk in front of that bus. Like, I wish you could catch those people at those moments and just hold their hand and look them in the eyes and say, nope, we're not letting you go. The same way you wouldn't have let me go when you got shot or when you were blown up. We're not letting you go because you're on North American soil does not give us the right to let go of you now the same way we would yep. never have let go of you then. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and a way to, to open people's minds is to let them see it, right? People think in pictures. Um, they visualize everything, right? So if I tell you a story of combat, it's going to be perceptive in your mind of, of what you think. It's not going to be what I see. Mm -hmm. And there is opportunities, especially in the veteran community, um, take Vikings, the the, the um, series Vikings. Mm -hmm. We've had right. one of them on. We've had Alexander yeah. Ludwig on. Yeah, oh, awesome. Um, if you think of Vikings, you think of 
badass warriors, yeah. male and female, right? You had both, you had male and female others, fucking kick ass. And the thing that got them through every battle was faith. Mm-hmm. Faith in the brother and sisters, faith in the gods. And then as you see a change and morph into, um, they went from multiple gods of Mahala and Odin to Christianity and Christ, right? Because what they saw was this isn't working. We're still badass, but we need something else just to help us out a little bit. And that's where the Christianity came into place, right? So you've got badass Vikings, badass warriors that need help. Mm-hmm. They're reaching that hand. And that's why that cross is so that, that cross hit me so much. Because you have these individuals that are just fucking badass and they believe that if we're together, we can conquer all. Right. But in that darkest fucking moment, the only thing that's going to save you is reaching up and getting that extra hand, right? And that is um that is where we've been failing. We've idolized the, again, the tattooed shooter muscles galore guy that can take on the world. Well, he can't. Until they can't. Right. It takes everybody together, uh, believing in one another, and not having that ego of, I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. Well, I did more, so I should be helped first. No, that's not how this works. Mm-hmm. Again, you're a veteran. There is no MOS. There's no AFSC. You're a veteran. We're all on the same page. And if we're going to get through this together, we have to be together. And you have to get back to uh, faith and morals and love and peace. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a veteran out there. And when I tell civilians this, everybody you know, looks at me cockeyed like I'm fucking crazy because I don't get it. But, you know, it goes back to the World War II saying of there's there's no atheists in foxholes. Mm-hmm. And there's not. You know, if you've ever looked death in the fucking eye, you know God is real. Um, if you've ever had a bad day in your life, bad moments in your life, you know God is real. And for some reason, we lost that, 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 that ideology of, of help, of reaching out and saying, fuck, man, I'm just not, I'm not doing good. Right. We lost that. And we created a, a force of individuals that, that think they can, they can do it. And they can for a short period of time. And unfortunately, when we have individuals that say that they are Superman, there's a million people watching that person and going, yeah, he's fucking right. Yep, he's got it. He's only got it for a small amount of time. Those superpowers disappear. And the one thing that doesn't disappear is, again, faith, love, and humanity. And being with your brothers and sisters, that never fucking disappears. And that's why I use that Viking analogy so much is um, 
in battle, they are embroiled into this concept of the gods giving them strength for this or that, right? But when that battle's over, what do you do? Where do you go from there? You have to rely on family. You have to rely on, on something that you can't see, something you have to trust in. And fortunate for you know the world, it's all written down. It's all written down in every religion, whether it's uh, Christianity, Judaism, Muslim, doesn't matter. It's all written in there. Every religion is based on peace and love. Right. Right? It's not based on fighting. It's not mm-hmm. based on any of that stuff. It's based on taking care of your, your fellow brethren and sisters. Um, and that's what we've lost. So I guess to make the, the roundabout way to it is that 50,000 organizations that are out there, that is family. And it just needs to come together with yep. that identity. But that identity has to be correct. You brought up uh, Matt Best. And I love Matt. And I love uh, Black Rifle Coffee. And I love the entire team that's there because they, they serve something, right? They serve a greater good and they can relate with a lot of veterans and civilians, you know, by utilizing um, comedy in, in, in horrible situations, right? Which is awesome. <clears throat> and that's one, one of the uh, pieces of that puzzle. That needs to be there. You need to have comedy. You have to have laughter and light. But too many people look at it and go, well, I have to be just like Matt Best. Exactly. Right? And that's not going to happen. I don't know if you've met Matt, but it's not going to happen. There's one Matt. There's one (laughs) Matt, and that's it. That's all we need, though. Right. And that's all you need. He, He brings comfort. And so that's Matt. And I wish people would find that inner beauty in themselves and go, this is me. This is who I am. Right. This is what I bring to the table. I don't have to act like Matt does. I don't have to act like whatever fucking actor they, you know, they see on the big screen or, or it might even be somebody in their unit, you know, that they, they uh, want to emulate. Mm-hmm. It's not the case. Find yourself. And the only way you find yourself is, um, uh, through experience, um, but that experience can be guided. And mm-hmm. if you look at your children, um, you have children, I have children. Um, my daughter just got married in November and I looked at her and I was like, holy cow, what happened? Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I spent most of my life in other fucking countries while she was growing up. And I looked at her, I looked at my wife, I looked at my son, looked at my other daughter. It's like, did I do good? You know, and that's what you're thinking in the back of your mind. Did I do good? Was I there for you? And the reality is there was, you know, a lot of time wasted, a a lot of time missed. But if you have that base of love, peace, and happiness, and if you're teaching your children that and they see it in you, they're going to emulate that. They're going to emulate it. You know, they're not going to go look to be like Matt Best. They're going to go look to be like you. And, you know, and that's what you want. So um, that's what people need to understand. You don't have to, you don't have to pretend. Just be who you fucking were. If you were that, if you were that paper pusher, you were the paper pusher. If you were that door kicker, you were the door kicker. 
guess what? If you guys met at a bar, if everybody met at a bar and you didn't know, and you didn't have this service connection, you'd be fucking talking for days and you'd have fun. There would be no ego. Right. Um, and that's, that's where we need to get to. A hundred percent. I fully agree. I like the idea of, of showing your kids who you really are. We did that. I've always done that. My son has always seen, uh, he's going to be a seven. He's seen the hard times. He's seen the good times. Mm-hmm. He saw the moment. It was one of the proudest moments as a parent I've ever had when we finally were in the middle of the movement and we were in the 45 minute window and I was standing on my back deck in a cul-de-sac screaming at the top of my lungs for people to just be brave enough to cross the road so we can get you to safety. And I got the final moment when I got a message that just said jackpot. And I dropped to my knees and he watched me and my husband watched me from the inside of the house. And I was exhausted and I was beat up and I was tired and I was angry and I was all of the things everyone was feeling. But he looked at me and I'll never remember, I'll never, ever, ever forget this moment. He looked at me and he said, mommy, did we win? <laughs> and he said, you're goddamn right. We won, honey. We won. We, we beat, if we could only beat them one time, we beat them one time. We pulled people one time that will never have to feel danger or threat or murder in the most horrific ways. We, we did one thing right, sweetie. That's what we did. And I'll explain that to him when he is older, but that was the moment I went, you know what, if I'm going to show my son who I really am, thank God it was this moment and not at my funeral when he can't understand why mommy checked out. Right. Yep. Exactly. Um, Yeah. My family's bore the brunt of a lot of of shit that I've done in my life. Um, a lot of not good stuff and a lot of good stuff. Um, but you can't hide that from them. Um, if they see you in your weakest moment, they pick you up at your strongest moment and you stay strong. Mm-hmm. But you know that they have you at your weakest moment. And if you never show that, uh, if you never show that you are vulnerable to to death or vulnerable to to mistakes or vulnerable to um to losing yeah then they have this false idea that they have to be superman right like daddy and again you can only have superpowers for so long that's right so it, yeah definitely and that's I think that's where everything's lacking in the world right now is everybody wants insta fame. Everybody wants insta gratitude and, and whatever. They're quick not fix. looking at the whole picture. Yeah. They want the quick fix and it's not there. It starts, starts in your home and that carries on for generations. hundred percent. hundred percent. I go back to <clears throat> my mother, father, grandma, grandpa, great grandpa, and grandmas. And I look at what they had to face. And I use that for strength. You know, yeah. I use that and go, how the fuck did my great grandpa eat, you know, grits, <laughs> you know, yeah. three times a day while, you know, sleeping in the barn with a horse, you know, before he even started a family. Right. Um, but it, again, it was, you have to have faith, you know, 
I look at, you know, how that whole generation started, you know, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, you had nothing. You're out on the prairie with nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. So you can't tell me that they didn't find faith in God and, and utilize that. They had somebody was reaching down, holding their hand. Yeah, know, there has to be. To right and that carries on through generations as long as you can provide that example for your children to see and your grandchildren to see that's going to continue for more generations and that's right. to bring that into fold into afghanistan and kind of give the the perception to the public of what we did to afghanistan we created a generation for 20 years of peace um freedom-loving, um, education-driven bodies for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's known as the American tribe in Afghanistan. And we pulled the carpet up from them. So now we have generations that are not going to have the same opportunities you know um, you said you were 11 when 9-11 happened you know I had I had some young commandos that weren't even born yet that yeah. I was fighting you know and they were fighting for something they didn't fucking they weren't even born when it happened you know right um, so how do we fix that well um, we we heal from within because that's the only people that's going to care enough we have to heal within from within it's going to take it's going to take people like moral compass it's going to take people like defenders of freedom it's going to take heroic hearts it's going to take vets it's going to take 50,000 other organizations to just sit down and go how do we fix this and stop putting band-aids on things that are only going to get worse right exactly. that's how yep i agree 100% and it's unity it's unity and it's built into the name, dude. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's... I love and I I love everything that you have on, on your company. I think it's just amazing. Well, I appreciate that. We're trying because that's all we can do, right? Right. That's it. That's Everybody's it. gotta wake up every morning knowing that not every day is beautiful, you know. Um some days you're gonna struggle. But I guarantee you, at some point during that day, even in the darkest day, you're going to find some kind of light. And the minute you, you feel that light, you need to open it up. You need to listen to it. Um, I tell people, get away from technology. Just fucking throw your phone away. You know, fucking stay off the television. Stay off the computer. Yeah. Just get away from it. And you're going to feel a whole lot better. You know, yeah. um, the downtrodden of of combat is enough. The downtrodden mm -hmm. of losing people outside of the military service is detrimental. It, it is fucking killing people's souls left and right. Yep. And you don't even have to know the individual. Nope. You know, it, it, it doesn't even have to be somebody you knew. It can be something through the grapevine. Um, Scott Mann, this was... Uh, Oh, it was a few weeks ago. It was more than a few weeks ago. And I can't remember what we were doing. We are getting ready for something. And he calls up. He's like, hey, just lost a, a brother of mine. And I didn't know him. But you feel it. And it brings yep. back all of those horrible fucking feelings. 
And I'm not going to tell people that those feelings go away, but they they lessen. Um, today, you're not going to feel like you do today. A month from now, mm-hmm. you're not going to feel like you do today. Two days from now, a day from now. But you have to open up your eyes and open up your heart and and look at the big picture. That that little moment in your life of uh, six months on a deployment or <clears throat> three months or ten years here or there does not define the rest of your life. Nope. It's just a chapter. And you know, it's just like a book. You read it and turn the page. Each day is a new page, and it's your choice. And uh, and God willing, with those fifty thousand organizations, we can we can get a lot of pages in front of a lot of people because everybody deserves it. Well, I think that we will. I think with people like you that continue to lead from the front to show examples of how to do it instead of just saying to do it, but how to do it, we will. It just takes people to care and you do that. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because I do know what you're doing. I am conscious and aware of your efforts and I wanted other people to see that and we'll continue to spread your message and we'll continue to yell it from the rooftops because I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. And I really don't (laughs) think you do either. No. And I thank you for everything you're doing, Kelsey. You too, my friend. We just, it's, we're, we're stronger together. And as long as we realize that, then everything will continue to go swimmingly and it will only get better from here, but we just have to, it does. It really only does. Um, where can everyone find you? Where can everyone find everything about moral compass? How do we, how do we make this federation the thing? Right. So we've got moral compass. Um, you can find us at moralcompassfederation.com or .org. Um, don't confuse it with Moral Compass Foundation. That doesn't exist. It's a federation. And I named it a federation because it's 21 organizations. Um, I the, the federation itself is not a 501c3. And I chose to do that on purpose. All of the organizations that we have within Moral Compass are 501c3. Um, I wanted to be able to speak my voice without having to worry. Yep. Not where you know money comes from or government telling me what I can and cannot do. So yep. um, I do utilize Special Operations Association of America um, through the uh, Moral Compass website. You can donate and everything will be processed through them. And we can we can continue doing this mission and making it bigger and brighter. There's, uh, this year is going to be big. Um, lots of changes coming. Good. Well, I'm uh, internally grateful for your time, for the effort that you're putting into our community to keep everyone alive, because God knows we need people like you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do. Thank you for your time served. Thank you for seeing and acknowledging that there's more than medication and just PTSD and trauma left behind, but there is ways that we can move forward, do things better and be there for one another. And I will make sure to put all of your information in the bio and where people can find you guys, how they can support you, how they can elevate your voice and how do we get more and more individuals to realize what you're doing. So thank you again so much for your time. Thank you so much. Kelsey. All right, everyone else that's Travis. I'll see y'all next week.